All right, folks, we are back here. It's kind of a late night after dark podcast here with Representative Andy Josephson. How are you? A little tired. It's uh, after 8 p.m. and uh, we've had a full day. You guys just just got off the floor on the operating budget. Yep. Um, And uh, yeah, it's it's almost 8.30. So this is my latest podcast yet. Well, it's good. I've got to bust out the beers. We don't have any. (laughs) Do you have any? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's around somewhere. Have to find them. Yeah. Um, so before we start, I want to say you you have an interesting office here. You have uh, I took a picture of it last week and put it on Twitter. You have like a safe, like a vault in your office. There is a safe, and there's a sticker on it that says 1930. Um, I'm told the combination doesn't work, or rather the lock doesn't work, so no one could get locked in there. There's also stickers on the shelves that say 1958. Um, it's a it's a weird space, but if there's ever a lockdown, that might be a place to do it. Although, as I said, I, it's pretty easy. I, to I was told up. it was was it a federal thing for the post office? Was that? I think so. I think there were several safes in this building. I mean, it's, it's like the, a huge, it's like a walk in vault. Type it is situation. It so. is. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you could it's, put some, somebody who wants to be alone. They can go work in there. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Soundproof, probably. So let's talk a little bit about um, you. You know, you're, you're back. You're a lawyer. I am a lawyer. And there's a couple of you guys in the, the legislature. Yep. Um, but first, let's talk about um, your dad was in the legislature he many, was. many years ago. Yep. And I actually was talking, I did a podcast with Senator Begich uh, mm-hmm. a few weeks back, and I didn't realize, I knew about the Sheffield stuff with the uh, p- potential impeachment. Yeah. And I didn't realize a bunch of Watergate lawyers came up here for that. Yeah. But I guess your dad was very involved in all of that. He was very involved, and I think it was partly by happenstance. So what happened was um, the impeachment trial, effectively, uh, by rule, was held in the Senate Rules Committee. So if you were on the Rules Committee, you you know you were sort of uh, adjudicating that. And he was a Democrat, uh, and the governor of Sheffield, of course, was a Democrat. So he played effectively the role of the governor's defense counsel within that Rules Committee forum. Wow. So, so a bunch of Watergate lawyers had come up for this, I was told? Yeah. Uh, a guy named Lacavera, that, that name comes to mind. There was another one. There were several of their heavy hitters from about a decade before who were involved in the Watergate proceedings. Yeah. So were you in Alaska at the time, or where were you at? So that was the summer of 85. I had just gotten back from a year in England. I was about to enter my senior year of college. Um and I, you know, obviously I was aware of it. It was, I think it occurred, that is the, the hearings occurred in August of 85. So it must have been sort of a special session kind of thing. Wow. So yeah. uh, you came back and then you went to, where'd you go to law school? I went to uh, what's now part of Penn State. It's in, it's Dickinson School of Law in Carlisle. It's near the Gettysburg Battlefield. Um, but I didn't go to law school until I was 30. Okay. So what'd you do in the mean, meantime? So in the meantime, I did a Master of Arts in teaching at UAA, and then I went out to the bush, and I taught in a Yupik village, a place called Kalskag, not to be confused with Caltag, mm-hmm. um, on the Kuskokwim River. I was there for three years, and then was looking at graduate history or law school and decided to go to law school in Pennsylvania. Wow. So you, uh, so a lot of lawyers, a lot of my friends at least who are lawyers, they kind of go to undergrad, they go to law school, then they start working, but you had a, kind of, I guess a probably five or six, seven year... Yep break and well not break working in the in the bush wow that's so you when it comes to teaching and stuff you probably really have a more unique knowledge than most people um i yeah i mean i know what that career is about i did it for three years 
And I'm very proud that I've kept my certificate current. So I'm current through 2022. So every five years I pay my fee and do my fingerprinting and they let me back in the club. So why'd you decide to, to go to law school? I went to law school because, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, I was thinking about graduate history or law. My sister, who's younger, went to, to law school and I thought that was a good move for her. And I, I thought, well, I need to do something of sort of that professional caliber as well. Um, and, you know, I'm glad I went. Uh, it, it's just sort of the culture I grew up in. My father's a lawyer. My sister's a lawyer. Um, I think certainly other extended family are lawyers. Uh, and it was, it's a great education because for, for those of us who don't know what they want to do for a living, law school is so versatile and such a potpourri of, of issues and topics especially after you get through the first year that you're taking classes on everything imaginable. Um, and it's, it's a great opportunity, a great yeah. education. I did a podcast uh, this morning with uh, former chief justice, Bud Carpinetti. Okay. And he was telling me that he has four kids and three of the four are lawyers. R- right. I actually you know, knew that about the Carpinetti. His, his wife yeah. was also, is also a lawyer. She yes. was in the legislature. So it's a yeah. lot of lawyers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, kind of like your, like yeah. your family. It sounds yeah. like. So you, you practice law. Did you practice in Anchorage? Is that where you... So um, what I did was I, I did what many people do, and, and I was a law clerk for superior court judges, which is sort of more serious than it sounds, right? So you're, um, it's not like you're just answering phones or something. You're, you're looking at the files. You're um, writing memoranda, occasionally drafts of briefs. Um, you're in there tracking that judge's workloads. Well, so funny. I did that in Fairbanks for a year and then in Kenai for another year. It's funny you said that because um, Carpernetti this morning told me, we were, I asked him about becoming a judge and I asked a friend of mine once, you know, a lawyer, do you ever want to become a judge? And he says, oh, no way. I didn't know, never want to do that. And he, I said, why not? And he goes, it's the loneliest job you'll ever have because you can't really talk to anybody about your work. You can't be involved in certain dinner parties, conversations. Anyways, he said the the biggest choice or one of the hardest choices he ever had was hiring his law clerk because that was the only person he could discuss all of his kind of cases with. So he said it's a very important decision who you hire for that. Well, and and, and this is what Judge Carpinetti told you. He told me that, yeah, earlier. Well, (laughs) I'll share a story with you. Uh, I interviewed with him once. Oh, really? And he was very selective. And um, everything you've just said about his sort of agonizing over that, I, I am aware of. Let's put it that way. Yeah, because um, I think you hear a clerk and the average person thinks, oh, it's somebody, like you said, maybe right. answers the, but it's a very serious, I mean, it's a very serious uh, job it, you have. It is. And judges, the other thing uh, <clears throat> about being a judge is you uh, don't get to pick your own cases, right? Um, you you get whatever's filed in your sort of bailiwick, civil or criminal, sometimes both. Um, but at any rate, I did that for two years and then I joined the prosecutors, the state prosecutors. That's right. You were a prosecutor. That's right. Um, remember, remember hearing that. Yep. So, so you have, well, so you have the teaching background, the legal background. So you're, you're probably pretty well, well suited for this building. Well, I am, but you know, I've thought Jeff that, um, the ideal legislator, if you were going to like build one and mold one out of bronze or whatever, would have some medical background of some sort some education, maybe a trade, so they knew what it was like to be a plumber or a carpenter. They'd be an accountant. Um, all of those types of skills, maybe a commercial fisherman in Alaska would have value, absolutely, to understand that niche. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things could be meaningful to to the role of being a legislator. I think I've heard before you have to you have to know a little about a lot. You absolutely do. 
and it is the joy and the sorrow for me about this job. So the joy is there's there's rarely any boredom. You can you can pursue anything you want to pursue, and that that's actually just great fun. So if a person decided they wanted to become an expert on on beekeeping, they could just study bees all day and go to bee forums and bee seminars and advance that legislation, um, and the world would sort of open up for them. Um, but the difficulty is you're supposed to respond to essentially everything that goes on in the building. Every hearing effectively could make could be something you have to decide upon, even though you weren't there. Well, it's interesting for my kind of role, what I'm doing with the landmine and covering this building. I, I try to go to things that I think are interesting. But on any given day, there's five or ten or more hearings. And uh, that's a whole nother topic, but kind of the, the lack of media nowadays. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that happens that, that never really gets taught. And sometimes it's really important stuff. Absolutely. Where, where there's nobody in the room, except the legislators, whoever's involved, maybe a lobbyist. Absolutely. So so imagine, for example, your listeners might find this interesting. You could be in a situation where, frequently, where you're asked to vote on Bill X. And Bill X was heard over a dozen committee, uh, a dozen hearings and three or four committees, um, none of which you have time to attend. You're lucky if you could possibly read the minutes or watch the audio. So you're relying on the text of the bill. What does it say? That's mm-hmm. the most important thing. But then you're sort of gauging, well, who liked it? Who didn't like it? What are, what's, what are the documents relevant to it? Who wrote letters in support or against? Um, and it's, it's sausage making. It's, it's not a perfect process. The way I would describe this is if your surgeon was going to do surgery on your knee, for example, this way, you, you'd, you'd turn and run if you could with a bad knee. Um, it's just not always that precise. Yeah, I imagine you have people you really, really trust and rely on and say, what do you think about this? You, this is something you've been paying attention to or you've been working on. What's, what's your opinion? I do. And also along with whether they have expertise is sometimes their predisposition, their personality, right? Do, do they tend to get locked in and have tunnel vision that may not help them, right? So... Um, I also want to know, are they seeing all angles of mm-hmm. something? So it I mean, depends. It's very nuanced, and it depends on who you're talking to. Sometimes I've, I've noticed that um, you know, I've written some stories about a bill, and it's somebody's bill, and, and they're so, uh, they get so attached to the bill. It's like, that's my bill, you know, and they get, they get it's like that's all they think about is that. And then the bill can change, and people can do amendments, and right. Then right. all of a sudden sometimes that bill is very different than what they, because once you introduce the bill, it's kind of, open to all kinds of changes from the committees and from the floor, yeah. other body. Yeah. So, so wise people say, don't be married to your bill. It's hard not to be. Um, and you have to be willing to try to advance the core principle and be less concerned with sort of what's around the edges often. Um, and the other thing you learn about democracy is it, it's like moving a tanker. It's slow uh, to turn and to change culture takes a while uh, for sure. Yeah, kind of that was by design. You know, you don't want to make it make it hard to make new laws or th- make changes. I think that's right. Yeah. So you were a prosecutor and then at some point you said, I, Oh, I'm gonna run for run for legislature. Well, except yes, except that there were nine years in between there where I did family law. So I practiced with two firms. One was in the Diamond Center. Uh, above the ice rink, if people in Anchorage are listening. And then I uh, joined a law firm downtown. And so I did, oddly enough, divorce, custody, child support, retirement division orders, restraining orders. Um, I was in court a lot um, and uh, churned a lot of files and did some appellate work as well. Did you ever take a, take a break and go ice skating? Lunch I don't know break? that I 
did that. I'm not a very good skater. I like that. I like I, going over there, and you can go on top and look down. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all right. It's all right. So, what made you decide to run? I mean, was it your dad was in the legislature? Was that part of it, or? Well, a few things. The first one is um, I have incredible passion for Alaska and, and all things Alaskan. So. Uh, I care a lot about Alaska. I care about public policy. I'm, I come from a political family. My father uh, came up here because he worked for Bob Bartlett starting in 1958 before statehood. Oh, wow. My mother worked for a guy named Bill Proxmire. His picture is on the wall as we speak there on the left. Um, he was a senator from uh, Wisconsin right after Joe McCarthy. In fact, he took Joe McCarthy's seat. So he was sort of a progressive Democrat. He's like a really happy guy. He does in that photo. Um and uh, he notes my my mother's connection to his office in that uh, in that s- signed portion. Um, Your parents, so that where they meet? Uh, they met in Washington D.C. Uh, they were both working on Capitol Hill, and so I come from this quite democratic, uh, core belief uh, values kind of family. Um, grew up around that, and I think I'd always been interested in running for office. I was more patient than some people, right? So some people are just itching to get at it in their 20s and 30s. I was very consumed with what I was doing. Um, and then when redistricting occurred around 2010 and 11, I I thought, okay, this family law thing, frankly, <laughs> is sort of for the birds. I mean, it it paid well, and I was quite good at it, but I needed to pivot and and go into something that was more interesting. So I looked at this newly formed district, the UMED district, and there was no sitting incumbent. It was an open seat. And I said, I'm going for it. And I just went all out. That's how I first kind of got to know you because in that year, I, 2012, I ran for the Senate, state Senate. Yep. And I, I was one of, I was 20, I guess 27 at the time. I'm one of those guys you talked about that decided I wanted to do it. And I right. said, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I saw, I started to kind of see you around and yeah. I think you, did you have a, you didn't have a primary, did you? I've never had a primary. So you, you had, who was your general? I'm trying to remember who that was. Uh, Dick Trainey. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and he just he, finished his term on the assembly. He's termed out, so he, he's he's off the assembly now. He did, and you know it's interesting. I've grown to be very fond of him. Um, of course, I don't know if he'd want to hear this. He may confess it, but I think over the span of his career, which has been long, right? So he first, I think, served in the early '90s. Um, so it's a you know multi-decade assembly mm-hmm. career. He's become more progressive, but I see how tirelessly he works. Well, uh, and and it's often unsung, un you know, no one gives you many attaboys for it. Um, but he's served us well in Anchorage. When I was president of my community council, Taku Campbell, he was my um, assembly person, and sen- mm-hmm. now Senator Gray Jackson was the other one. Yeah, and they would basically be at every meeting. Right. If they couldn't make it, they would tell you they couldn't make it. Yep. So he was very engaged. With him, it's it's always been kind of hard for me to, you know, well he does one thing, and I think, wow, that guy is like very conservative, and then. Two weeks later, he does something, and it's like, wow, that's very liberal. Right. He does very kind of things that make, make you guess about where he's at yeah, um, yeah. So, politically. So, yeah, I ran against him, and I will tell you that when I heard he was going to file, uh, which was right before Memorial Day in 2012, I, I thought for sure this would become a, a very bad decision of mine to Cause file. Because he's, he's got a, people know him really people well. People know him, and he's a formidable person and smart person. Um but interestingly, your readers, your listeners rather, will find this interesting. I latched on by accident to a guy named John Henry Heckendorn. So, oh, John he, Henry was, he was just getting started back then, wasn't he? Yeah. So John Henry came to Alaska because I brought him here. Um, really? Yes. He it, he. I did he, not know that. 
It's true. He arrived June second, twenty twelve, to be my campaign manager exclusively, and uh, I did. How did you get to know him or how find him? Well, what I did was I had an epiphany, and I thought I should just call my alma mater, Whitman College in Walla Walla, and see if they've got some young gun who wants to do this. And they gave me a few nominees, and I phoned them, and I hired John Henry, and uh, that was a good move. That's amazing. I did not. This is people listening to this are gonna. Yeah. I think most people, I mean, I feel like I pay really close attention to this stuff and I didn't know that. Yeah. I, yeah. um, the first time I really, I don't know if you were there, were you at Arctic Entries years ago when he did a story about going to DC and then he ended up accidentally at some all black church and then he spent the whole summer going to this tree. So he told the story at Arctic Entries. It was a really good story. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Um, I, I think he told me about it. Or I heard about it. It was a really good, the way he told it was really good. So, yeah. So you brought, so where was he at? Was he in school? Was he? Out of school, done with school, or he literally had just graduated in Walla Walla from Whitman College. And you said, so, "I'm running for state house. I, I need somebody to come do my campaign." Yep. Did he have any experience with campaigning? Or? Oh no, no. But he is. Uh, it's just been wonderful to see how well he's done. And you know, um, I, I like to think of it when I think of the Jimmy Stewart movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. He's sort of comes to mind in that. You know, the idea of the, the film is that that we all touch someone who then touches someone else. And it's like yeah. putting a pebble in the lake and you get the ripples. Um, he would qualify in that respect. Right. So I I like to think I changed his life. I, I, I don't think he would have come to Alaska. I'm trying to it? think of, uh, you know, the political article that came out last year about him. And, and um, I think Forrest Dunbar, there was a whole political. Remember the political article? Yeah, there have been a number of articles. Wolf big- did a piece on on. Uh, John Henry's uh, coming to Alaska mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. There was like a, I just didn't, they, they, they didn't, they, they didn't say that you brought him up here. They left, they left you out. We have to, yeah, like, I don't know. Yeah, now, but, now, now, now people are going to know. Yes, they are. So yeah. you won the election. Yeah. And then you've been in there since. And now, now you're um, on the finance committee. This I'm is your first finance. time, on, this is your first time on the finance committee? Yes. And I've been watching that. Uh, I think a lot of people have been watching it this year because of the, the way the house organized took, took yes. 30 some day, 30, more than 30 days. Yep. What was that like, that whole period of, you know, they had the Republicans kind of claim victory the next day, but they really never got a real coalition yeah. T- yeah. together. So it was this whole period of before the session started, after the session. It must have been very hard and frustrating. It was very hard. Um, you know, it's it's such an interesting thing because we had 22 seats. Um, we ended up losing three of those seats, so Representative Seaton, Gren, and then ultimately Kawasaki had vacated his seat and you know not surprisingly Democrats wanted Catherine Dodge to win it turns out that uh, the gentleman who beat her is a very fine guy and very reasonable and likable and I'm enjoying working with him and he's in your he's in your group he is Bart Laban and in fact one I'm, Mr. Bart one vote Laban Bart one vote Laban um and then yeah um you know, I remember going on vacation in December and thinking, "Oh, geez, I'm not going to be physically present to, to sort of make my own pitch for the ki- for the committee assignments I want." Well, then December became January. the The Fairbanks District One seat was unresolved, and then when it resolved uh, for Mr. Lebon, um, a lot of folks thought, "Well, that'll be dispositive." Now the Republicans surely will organize, and then and then everyone knows what happened with Representative Knopp saying. He, he needed more diversity than that. Um, it's been a whole remarkable turn of events. And, you know, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Has it been, now that you guys, what's, how many are in the group? 25? 
Correct, 25. So the last coalition was 22, then at the end kind of 21. Is it, is it a little better being in a... Because before that, you were in the minority, the first two, two, two terms, right? Correct. First four years or two terms, I was in the minority. Yep. So the last legislature, when you were in the majority, but a very slim, yeah. is it... Is it Feel like you have a little more breathing room now with twenty five instead of twenty, twenty one or twenty two. Is it is it a little bit little, little better? Yes, I mean you know, um, I suppose I suppose each of us, as boring as it might be, would love to have you know our political colleagues see the world just the way we do. Uh, that would be quite dull, but it would be we think at least that it would be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all I mean by saying that is th- this is a more centrist coalition. It's certainly more diverse um, in terms of its political ideologies or ideologies held uh, by the members. Um, it is better. I think it's more functional to have twenty five. So we had situations where, as you know, we had two members who were either asked or forced to resign. Uh, and that was remarkable that we made our way through that. And then you had a couple illnesses, um, and so there were times when it wasn't infrequent to not have the 22 members, right? Yeah. So so now with 25, we have a little bit more of a cushion. We've got a member who's um, having a new baby born, and so that's okay. Um, he can be where he needs to be, and we're still at 24 and that sort of thing. Um, so it's each, each year, each term is a different animal, I would say. So in the past, Republicans under Chenault, Speaker Chenault, they'd had like 30, you know, a couple of times. So they yep. had the super kind of super majority yep. where probably was, you almost think at that point when the majority is too big, I've always thought you, you kind of get these weird factions within the majority. Yes. So at 25, it seems like, I mean, that kind of, maybe, really forces people to kind of, hey, we have to get, you know, work together here. And yeah. Um, uh, let's, let's transfer factions. Yes, yes. Um, you know, the interesting thing about the concept of factions is, uh, I think of Venn diagrams a lot in that there is um, sort of overlays of belief, right? So, so for example, I'm quite conservative on crime. Uh, I'm quite liberal on human rights. Um, I'm very generous when it comes to the budget. You know, when someone said, for example, when it, when a nurse testified, we've cut public health nursing too much. It was $5 million cut over three or four years. Uh, and, and influenza rates have gone up and there are few, fewer vaccinations. I hear that. I'm like completely em- empathic with that kind of comment, um, empathetic, and want to help. And uh, so so all I'm trying to say is there's there can be diversity and, and you have to be patient with one another because there will be uh, overlapping that goes on. Yeah, there, I mean, one issue you can be right. lockstep and the other issue you can be totally, uh, you know, on a loggerheads. That's right. That's absolutely right. So um, yeah. d- did you, um, when you guys finally organized, did you kind of want to be on the finance committee? Because that's kind of the, the big committee. How'd that... I wanted to be on the finance committee. I'd been co-chairman of the House Resources Committee. I had a feeling that... Uh, that, uh, you know, Representative Lincoln might be interested in co-chairing with Representative Tarr. Um, Representative Tarr is an outstanding co-chairman of the committee. She's just a very talented individual. Uh, and, you know, given that um, Les Guerra had left, we had, our bench had been seriously depleted uh, by retirement and by Kawasaki's elevation, if that's the right word, to the Senate. Um, Grant, Grant, too. And Grant, that's right. So, so there were a number of circumstances there. Representative Seaton lost, of course, that there were some openings 
And, you know, a guy or gal wants to see naturally their career sort of on an upward slope. And I feel like mine has had that and, um, and that it was time for me to move on to the finance committee. It seems like, you know, you watch the finance committee in the house or the, the Senate. I mean, it just seems like so much more happening or, or more work than other committees. It's meeting a lot more, a lot of subcommittees happening. It seems like just when you're on the finance committee, you probably don't have the ability to be a major part of other committees. Well, that's right. And in fact, the culture is that uh, with a couple exceptions, you you generally are not a member of another committee. You're just on the finance committee. The finance committee does meet a lot. I'm very lucky that it's right down the hall, so it doesn't take me long to get there. You can, you're probably almost one of the closest ones. Yes, yes. Um, I will tell you that the, the policy committees um, do have an absolutely brutal workload, particularly uh, during the subcommittee process. So there were, I learned, some parts of the session where it might have been actually a little bit easier, oddly enough, to be on the finance committee. Um, you didn't have quite as many back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back hearings. So um, it all evens out. Uh, I know that the finance committee will be where the action is in the days coming forward. Yeah, and like we said earlier, we got the House operating, the operating budget's being debated now in the House. Yeah. So, so what happens now that goes, you guys will pass that, It'll go to the Senate, and then they'll they'll pass a capital budget. Yes, it'll come to you guys, and then there'll be, I imagine, a conference type committee. Correct. So unless uh, the Senate's version of the bill is identical to ours, which is almost impossible, um, they will each side will sort of reject the other side's version of the bill, and and then presiding officers will will pick conferees three. Um, two from the majority and one from the minority, and they will meet and try and hash out differences. And I've never, I haven't been on the finance conference committee, but essentially um, at, in the first round, they can only pick one or the other number. That is, if you want 100 bananas and I want 10 in my budget, it's either going to be 100 or 10. Um, and then in the second round, it could be 50. We could negotiate and say, well, let's pick 50. Uh, and then at some point you can have free conference where maybe it's uh, 200 bananas, even though no one's be yeah. fascinating so it's, to be part of that. Yeah. So the conference committee and, and then the concept is you're you're um, letting the conferees deal with this. Every other member's already had their hands on it and had an opportunity. The budget then goes back to each floor for um, uh, essentially approval um, as is and um and sort of uh, a rubber stamping of the con- the work of the conferees. So being on the finance committee, I mean, this whole big issue with Governor Dunleavy's proposed budget, and now you guys have kind of done a different budget than mm-hmm. his. Mm-hmm. Where are you, um, I mean, generally, kind of what do you think about his proposed budget and what, you know, looking at cuts and revenues and permanent funds and all that? What, what's kind of your, I don't know, 30,000 foot view of all of all of this? I have very strong feelings about it. I think that the governor is um, is is really, really mistaken. I mean, seriously mistaken about his position. I think that um, he's not being especially well advised. I think that uh, his agenda does damage, I think, arguably to his own career um, in some ways. I think that, I, I hope that in a couple of years, um, he moderates. But I mean, I'll give you one example. Just this is one example. So we've had a ferry system since statehood. And even though the administration says we're not trying to kill off the ferry system, they sort of are. 
right? So, for example, well, I mean, with, with the proposal, I think it would shut down in October, right? That's right. So, Jeff, if you asked for a ferry ticket from Auk Bay here in Juneau to Haines on October 2nd, they wouldn't even take your money, okay? Um, and I just think that's, that's just sad. It's like that would be the governor's legacy to take this thing that moves people around, these beautiful ferries after 60 years, and be the guy that ended it. It's it's a remarkable well, sort I of think folks position have pointed, to take. Folks have pointed out that he said uh, multiple in Ketchikan and other, other places he didn't have any plans to, to really dismantle. I forget the quotes, but it, it, it I think the, if somebody heard that, they would say, oh, there's really not going to be any major changes to the ferry system. And then the budget came out. And yeah. I think people, in, I mean, I was at the Juno, your, one of the, fi- fin- the first house finance meeting, they had public meeting. And yeah. I mean, it was like, like overwhelming how many people were talking about that right you know the the other thing is um at a key moment about a say a month or six weeks ago we heard from the administration's chief economist ed king and ed king's position was that the thing that was best for jobs and job creation was paying a full dividend uh and that that was sort of the the holy grail and there was no other way to go we then heard from a guy named Dr. Musim Gutabi, who I'm sure you've heard of with the... I, I watched his, uh, yeah, from, yeah. From, from ICER. Right, from the UAA's Institute of Social and Economic Research. And Mr. Gutabi testified that really a moderate dividend uh, and a more responsible budget would save 7,000 jobs. Now think about that. 7,000 jobs. That's every man, woman, and child living in, in Seward and Homer combined. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, um, did anyone offer a retort to Dr. Gutabi? Did they, did they controvert him? No, they didn't. And so I'm left with Dr. Gutabi. And I just look at this and I say, why is any of this a good idea? Um, and, and, and then the other part, of course, that, that is problematic for me is that we clearly have a revenue problem, right? So, you know, the way I describe this is... Um, if, if you had a husband and wife each making $50,000, $100,000 family income, and the husband came home and said, honey, I've lost my job. And the wife said, I got some bad news too. I've been, uh, my hours are reduced. I'm only making $20,000. That, that is sort of one-fifth the income they used to have. And, and frankly, arguably, that's sort of where we still are. Because if you didn't have the POMV, you'd have a deficit approaching $3.5 billion dollars where we used to be, you know, we, we used to bring in over $6 billion. So it's, it's still an issue. And what that family would do in that circumstance is they'd either go live off the land and, and hunt moose and homestead, or they'd find new revenue. And we have cut the operating budget over 24%. We've cut the total budget over 44%. Uh, and at some point, it becomes obvious that there's a revenue gap. Yeah, I mean, when I ran back in 2012, the first time, um, actually my whole reason for running was I said, I think we're spending way too much money. At the time, the budget was um, $8 billion combined mm-hmm. uh, capital operating, mm-hmm. and the price of oil was very high. But mm-hmm. I kept saying, well, what if the price goes down? We can't be balancing the budget on 100, it was I think $100 some oil. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the price you know declined over time, and the spending eventually, it's interesting because I was saying, I think we should reduce the spending it went from eight to I think now it's about four. Last year it was four point five or four, somewhere b- right below five. That's right. So I, I I always say I just don't know how much less it can go. I mean I I think there's some room. You guys have cut is it a couple hundred million or we've cut uh, 
Well, we had cut 257 million, although about an hour ago, we added back about 50 million. And, and this is an example, by the way, of one of my concerns with the governor. So what did we add back? Well, we decided to pay half the school bond debt reimbursement that typically we would pay. Now, why is that significant? Well, without having done that, on a regular home, a $358,000 home, which is sort of a typical home in Anchorage, taxes will go up or would have gone up $450. So yep. it's, it's no longer a $3,000 dividend. It's a $2,500 dividend, right? So what we said, because the outcry, the hue and cry was so great that we said, all right, we're going to fund half of what we would typically fund to help municipalities with their school bond debt. As a consequence, that tax increase will now be $225. So there's still a tax increase. But this is another concern with the governor's uh, proposal, is it's a game of whack-a-mole. I think of it as a sort of form of cheating. It's sort of like, I'm taking local government's income in the form of, for example, the oil property taxes or the fish landing taxes. And therefore, it's really not my problem. I've shoved this problem well, onto the local governments. It's interesting. Senator Mach- I did a podcast with Senator Machiki a while back when we were talking about this. And you know, he, he kind of, after he, he almost lost and he kind of became the mm-hmm. kind of full dividend guy. But uh, he said something interesting and it made a lot of sense to me. Um, he's also on the Senate Finance Committee. He says this budget showed one thing. It showed you can't cut $1.6 billion. You can't. Right. You can cut so much, then you have to find other revenue. So you go to the property, oil and gas property tax, yep. the landing tax, the, all these different things to, to get money. Um, and he makes a good point. You know, the, the, If you could cut the money, you'd cut it. Yeah. But instead of cutting it, they've, they've tried to take a lot of money from other, other communities, right. which, which really just, um, I think, demonstrates the fact that, that you know, the cuts have been in the billions over the last several years. Yes. How much more can you... I don't know the answer to that, but like, where's the ideal spend where it's not too much, but we're not cutting it to the point where we're losing really core services. Right, right. And then, and then, you know, unfortunately, um, the, the 2017 House, I did something I'm very proud of, and that is we passed a balanced fiscal plan. We call it the four-pillar plan. Um, the Senate wanted nothing to do with it except for pillar four, I guess, which was whatever pillar you want to call it, which was the percent of market value, SB26. I voted for that. Um, I'm proud of that vote. Um, but uh, it's, it's pretty self-evident that at some point we're going to need either broad-based revenue or an increase in oil taxation. And in the meanwhile, the dividend is left to fight for its, by itself and for itself against the budget. It has no ally with which to prop itself up. I almost think of this as sort of these inanimate things going to war. The dividend effectively went to war with oil taxes, and oil taxes won. And by that, what I mean is they were not raised and the dividend went to war with an income tax, and it lost there too because an income tax didn't pass. So the dividend has been been asked to be paid less than the formula because now it's at war in a binary situation just with the budget. And, and in that situation, uh, many of us think, geez, you know, rather than having a kindergarten class with 40 kids, we may not be able to pay a full dividend. But we're not given a choice because there's no other revenue to try to pay a full no, that's dividend. That's true. I mean, it, it, it is it is a binary choice because my, my my kind of thought with the governor's plan is, you know, he wants he wants to cut the spending a lot. He wants the full dividend. That's he made that very clear. He doesn't want to tax any no income tax, sales tax. You know, changing the oil and, and personally, I think the oil and gas that issue is 
we change them every five or six or seven years, so it creates a whole kind of instability mm-hmm. situation. But but there, there's there's no desire for any new revenue. You, you you and you want this full huge dividend, which to me I've, I've always people have talked about the owner state model, and I and I say well if you want to be an owner state you should act like an owner, and it's irresponsible I think to cut cut the government down to nothing but then hand out all this money, three or four thousand dollar dividends. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, the other feature of his plan, he, he has this slide that he shows in every presentation. And it's, I can remember two of the words, it's sustainable, predictable, and a third word. But the predictability in his plan is responsible, I think, responsible, perhaps, but the predictability is just not there. So what, what his plan does is say, we are going to be absolutely married to the price of oil forever. Okay. And, and there's nothing predictable about that. In fact, if you took him, his thesis literally correct, what it would mean is, I guess, although in fairness to him, he has a spending cap amendment, but but I guess the concept is if, if oil flowed at $130 a barrel, we would have a, you know, we would spend it. Um, but again, in fairness to him, he does have this spending cap amendment. Uh, it's, I just don't know, it's, it's odd that I'm the guy trying to protect the economy. And I know instinctively that if you cut $1.6 billion, you would devastate the economy. And and just think about the morale. I mean, the other thing I thought about relative to this the administration is it's very much sort of like the Herbert Hoover-Franklin-Roosevelt dichotomy, right? Um, Roosevelt came in and he primed the pump, meaning he spent, right? And maybe we should do some spending because some of us don't think there really is a fiscal crisis. When you can pay a $1,000 dividend and have last year's budget, that's not really a crisis by any other well, governors. I've talked to so many friends in lower 48 or friends from, I've traveled a lot and I kind of try to give them our, I, I give them a very general high level explanation. And it's like anybody who kind of knows how this stuff works, they always like, well, well what about this $65 billion thing? Right, right. You know, they, they kind of, they, you can't explain our problems to right. people who don't Right. Know the problem. But getting back to the, the Hoover-Roosevelt analogy, Roosevelt offered people hope. Now, he had a real plan as well. That was the 100 days in the spring of 1933. But he offered people concrete hope. There's no hope in this Because well, there was a Hoover, Hoovervilles, you know. Right, that's right. There's, but the, what the governor's offering is not hope. In fact, in fact, there's sort of this, they, they're quite honest about sort of having to sort of um, destroy things before you can watch them rebuild. And it's very odd. The thing that I think about a lot is, you know, when Governor Walker won, the price of oil was on its way down. I think when he won, it was around 70. And then it went down way down to below 30. Yep. And if that, I just I just really wonder if the price of oil went down again like that, what would what, what, what he would do? Well, that's that's I very think, interesting. I think about that every day. I think what would he because I remember there was an interview with Governor Walker after he, the election before it was clear that he had won. And he kind of made this comment like, well, you know, it's we're we're at $70 oil. We, we got to, you know, that's, we, you know, hopefully it goes back up. But, you know, and now it's like 70. Oh, my God, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he would have to cut still further. And, and you know, one thing that's interesting, and this hasn't really been discussed much, but there, the likelihood, remember that about $550 million of his solution for the deficit is reform, quote unquote, of the oil and gas property and equipment tax, right? This is this is taking the North Slope's money and Valdez's money and a little bit of Fairbanks money, money that's been traditionally theirs that they've relied on and, and swiping it, stealing it from them just because, because you're the sovereign and you're pushing your weight around. Well, he's not likely to get that bill passed. It just is not going... Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and, so, and so what that means is 
he's going to have to veto or cut another $550 million beyond these other cuts, right? And some of this is just remarkable to me. I mean, if he got his university cut of $130 million, the university would almost certainly have to shutter one of its main three institutions. And this goes back to the ferry system concept, right? This is the, this is what you want to do. This is the legacy you want to leave. Really? I, it's remarkable to me. And you, you get down to, and you, you know this way better than me, but at some point you get down to the, a lot of this money and you cut a dollar, but it's really cutting five or $10, right? Because there's a federal match or a program. Oh, I mean, this is a whole nother. Kind oh, of- oh, oh, let me tell you. I, <laughs> I feel, and I've talked to Representative Clayman, and he feels the same way. Uh, again, another example of Venn diagram. Mr. Representative Clayman and I don't always agree, but on this we do passionately. I call it the Stevens Doctrine, right? If somebody's going to give you $10, if you give them $1, by God, give them the dollar, right? If you can get $10 for $1, you're a fool not to take the $10. The only example, and I've been using this lately, is is something utterly frivolous. So if somebody said, hey, there's a $10 matching grant if we study the viability of palm trees in Alaska, but we have to spend a dollar on palm trees, I'd say, yeah, they're not real viable right now, <laughs> right? So that would be true. That would be obviously frivolous. But otherwise, you take this is you take what you can get. And and frankly, I've heard minority members in particular say, well, this is going to, you know, uh, make the deficit in, in Washington worse and we can't do that. There's no brownie prize for helping Washington. They don't give you a plan. Yeah, I think what did you say? I think you said something. I forget what it was, but essentially it was kind of like, you know, if you're worried about that, I'm worried about that, too. But we're talking about point zero zero whatever. It was. I mean, it's just right. Right. It's just That's right. It's just like it's nothing. That's right. And, and um, you know, remember that those are dollars that help the economy, right? And so uh, if I were chief executive and somebody came to me in my administration and said, you know, we're going to do away with this $100,000 grant, and I asked, well, what do we lose? Well, we're going to lose this million-dollar match. I'd say, get out of here. <laughs> and don't ever come back and say that to me again, ever. It's just, it's just so obvious to me. But... I well, know. I mean, we're we're definitely kind of it's starting to get to the end, so it's well probably another month left, I guess. But yeah, um, it's going to start getting kind of real, real exciting pretty soon. Now, when all it the is. conference starts and the Senate does their thing. Yes, and um, yeah, and I talked about those concurrence votes and and meaning you know after conference committee will the bodies concur? They probably will. Uh, you know, I think that the Senate and the House are not too far apart in both their ideologies and sort of philosophy, that the governor's budget is way excessive in terms of its goals. Um, and, well, that's a whole other story. I think, I think that... Pretty, the, pretty, pretty ambitious there. It's very ambitious. And I think, I, anyway, I, it's not my job to advise the governor. But, um, uh, and then, you know, we get into the question of, all right... Um, can we finish our work within the 120-day constitutional requirement? I think we absolutely can. Um, and, and then the question becomes, all right, we, if we're still in session, we wait 15 days for the vetoes. And can we muster 45 votes to override? It's a very heavy lift. People have to understand that is a huge lift. For, that, yeah, that, for, that. for regular legislation, it's 40 out of 60, two-thirds. For budget uh, vetoes, it's it's seventy five percent. It's forty five out of sixty. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think the last time that happened, I think was I heard Parnell once, and Palin maybe once. I think maybe Governor Palin. Yeah, it's really and, rare it happens. I mean, forty five is like out of sixty is right. And the, and then you know, will the governor call us into special sessions? If we can't overcome a veto, will we call ourselves into special sessions? 
That is, we could we could have our own special session and say, you know, did is this really what he meant to do? Well, I think there's the other. I mean, besides the budget, there's these constitutional amendments he's proposed, and I and I don't. Yeah. I get the sense those aren't really going anywhere, especially the the one there was a finance committee or a, I think a Senate Judiciary Committee about the um, the taxpayer deal where they have to people have to vote on the ta- tax yeah. increases and, yes. and it, it, there was a really fascinating discussion about what exactly that means and right all right. All, the, all all five members of the committee kind of left like eh, I think we need to yeah yeah and look at and thing. yeah I mean there's sea change policies. Um, there's the spending cap. There's the uh, no dividend change uh, without permission of the people or a constitutionalizing of the dividend in its original formula, the 1982 formula. And then there's the um, the no taxation uh, amendment. These are these are extremely ambitious uh, pieces. And and you know I've heard members from the minority again say the governor won. Why aren't we advancing his agenda? And you know I respect that he won. I respect him and his office. Um, but let's remember that Walker also won. Was he showed due respect? Very little. I mean, the, the, ho- the, the house saying that no, probably most you know, of them probably not. I mean, he he was showed some respect, but but he wanted and deserved, I think, much more cooperation. He got some from the house. He got very little from the Senate, except on the percent of market value. Um, and you know, the other thing is, I, I work for eighteen thousand people in Anchorage. I don't I don't work for the governor. I'm happy to work to reach some reasonable compromise. Um, he's entitled to his share of political authority, absolutely, uh, because of the weight I've, of, I've, of the power that he holds. I feel like when I was talking to um, well, uh, Bud Carpenetti about about this, his Justice Not Politics group, we were talking about mm-hmm. just how many people are kind of don't really understand how the government, the government, basic facets of how the government works. Yeah, and and. You know, there's the executive and there's the governor and there's a legislate right legislature which is separate. Yes, and then there's the courts which are separate. Yeah, and I think there's some folks who just kind of think, well, he, you know, the governor won, and th- therefore everybody has to do what he wants. And that's right, not how our system works. Right, and I think our current president finds this frustrating. Right, yeah, oh, yeah. he 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 doesn't understand why there's checks and balances. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's one of the frustrations with democracy is that. It it like it's that tanker again. It moves slowly. Yeah. So, so for the for these to pass, I believe it's a, a constitutional amendment requires a two thirds. It does. So oh. so you know it, it, if it offers any solace to the governor, there's no um, shame in not getting an amendment. You need twenty seven votes. There's no reason for embarrassment when you can't muster twenty seven out of forty votes. Twenty seven in the house. Twenty seven in the house, and I think it's fourteen in the senate. Right. So um, that's tough to do. That would have been tough to do, even if the balance of power in the House wasn't so close, like, say, six years ago. Right. So there was some belief that maybe there would be vouchers. Well, uh, even though I was in a caucus of 10. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. There were plenty of people in the 30. Remember, I was in the 10, the minority in the 30 who would not agree to vouchers. So even the appearance of, oh, it's a 30-10 split. Surely we can get you know, 27 votes. No, nope, no. Nope. I think that was a Dunleavy bill was proposal, wasn't it? The vouchers? Dunleavy had a voucher proposal. Yeah, I, yes. I, I recall that. That yes. was, didn't, 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 no. was it, we weren't, we just weren't ready yet, were we? Right, no. We um, yeah. Well, uh, Representative Joseph, this has been a really good podcast. I, I, I think doing, the, doing them later at night, people are a little more relaxed. Yeah, 
I'm a little more relaxed. Sometimes I, I do them in yeah. the morning or something, and it's like, oh. Right. I haven't had my nightcap yet, but I will do that. We'll do that later. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again. This has been a great podcast, and I keep wish you all the best. And you're thank you so be much. Busy here in the next yeah. weeks to come. I appreciate your work. Maybe, maybe we'll do it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, maybe we'll do another one of these after the you bet. session's okay. over. All right, folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast down the road, um, let me know, and we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Landline.